reliability and this this month talking about re reliability making money i mean i often say to a lot of my students a lot of people i work with if, if reliability engineering isn't making you money you are doing it wrong so uh, this could be potentially uh, the first in the line of webinars we're always trying to uh create webinars in response to uh suggestions from you guys so uh so i dare say there is a a, a lot of ground that can be covered in terms of making really uh, beneficial decisions using many cases some basic reliability expertise. And the main point is uh, I, want to, I want to emphasize is that being dumb is expensive, which sounds confrontational, I know, but the reality is um, we are interested in doing things called smart activities, smart design, smart maintenance, uh, smart manufacturing. It's, it's not a buzzword per se. It's actually a really useful thing that you should be aspiring to do. Now, there's a lot of definitions of what smart is, but I like looking at smart design, maintenance, manufacturing from the perspective of what it's not. Because smart design is the opposite of dumb design and blind design. So dumb design is doing stuff um, without knowing why you're doing it, what you should be doing. And so a lot of organizations that do essentially dumb things using that definition, they confuse uh, effort with outcomes. They just don't know what needs to happen for their device. Um, and so they, they know they need to do something. So they go and do something that a standard says they need to do, or this guidebook over here that says they need to do. And often quite, uh, quite quickly, this organization will, will create a huge list, a huge shopping list, of design for reliability activities or maintaining for reliability activities or, or uh, quality manufacturing initiatives uh, because uh, they are not able to link activities with outcomes. And, and so if anything goes wrong, it invariably does, you need to add another thing to do without knowing what why you're doing it. That's dumb design. Uh, and and blind, uh, sorry, that's blind design. Um, and, uh, and dumb design is essentially uh, not being able to, uh, sorry, potentially knowing what you need to do, but not doing that for whatever reason. Sometimes we're under cultural uh, pressures where we need to focus on time and money this week. So even though we could, if we could spend a little bit more money this week and save, and we save a lot of money down the track because we have a very short term focus in our organization, we might just focus on trying to reduce costs this week at the expense of long term prosperity. So that's smart design. It's the opposite of blind and dumb design. So let's look at what we can do um, in terms of uh, using smart techniques uh, to try and try and essentially add value or good stuff to our organization. I'm going to use an actual uh, real life scenario here. And this scenario is based on a really, really big mining truck. Now, mining trucks are, like I said, enormous. They're so big, they take up most of the screen in front of you. And this truck in particular is uh, used in mining, obviously. You can uh, you need a ladder to climb up to, uh, to the steering wheel. It has a 400-ton payload. It uh, is off, off, often used in a very non-stop way in mining sites across the world where uh, the truck will keep going. And it's the drivers who shift in and shift out. Sometimes you can do, you can do this 24 seven. 
and it costs this truck costs somewhere between five and six million dollars. So it's a big bit of kit, uh, costs a lot of money. Not only does it cost a lot of money, it costs a lot of money to get to your site. Big trucks require big engines, and this uh, this truck's engine is an, an absolute monstrosity as well. It's not it's not a, uh, a not a hybrid or anything like that. This engine is uh, a really really big engine. It has uh, I think twenty cylinders. It has, uh, it can deliver up to 400, uh, sorry, 4,000 horsepower, cost between 700 and $800,000. So that's a, a lot of money for one engine. It's, a, it's an understandable expense because this engine is an absolute beast when it comes to uh, driving a monstrous truck. So let's just say you work on a mine site and you want to know how many spare engines do I need for a three year period just say for one truck, because these engines aren't, aren't easy to, to get. I mean, you can obviously reach out to the manufacturer and say, I need a new engine, uh, but there are lead times, many other, other lead times, there are supply delays or transportation delays. Uh, mine sites can, can operate in really remote parts of the world. So it makes sense to make sure you have spare engines because if that engine, uh, for whatever reason, ceases working, then your whole truck is offline. And we are taught as reliability engineers some very basic ways to answer this question. And unfortunately, those basic ways are, are, are rooted in the past to the extent that with the technology we have around us today, and when I was mean to say technology, I mean laptops, for example, we shouldn't be using some of the traditional approaches. So let's look at, say, dumb way number one. And we all use this approach we're about to go through. And I dare say, a lot of people will have uh, will be aware of this technique when it comes to working out how many spares you need. And what we do when we, we look at uh, this problem of working at how many spare parts of anything we need, we if we don't draw it on paper, we at least draw it in our minds or on our, on our computers, a, a set of axes which look like this. We want to understand how many failures we will have in the next period where we want to make sure we have enough spare parts to get us through that period. Now, we can't schedule failures yet, unfortunately, which is a real bummer. But what we can do is use statistics and probability to work out the probability of certain numbers of failures occurring. And once we get that model, we can essentially create a number of bars on these axes for each possible number of engine failures to help us answer our question. So the very basic approach is to use Fred's, uh, Fred's favorite metric, the MTBF, the mean time between failure. The, the mean of that random variable which describes how long it's going to take for our engine to fail. Now, just because uh, we know the MTBF is a, a metric which is not really related to reliability, but sounds like it is, doesn't mean it's not a thing we can actually use and calculate and put down on paper. But so for this engine, we're able to work out that I'd, on average, it's going to fail uh, 1.5 times in our three year period, which how can it fail half a time? It just means that uh, if we had, uh, if we had, for example, uh, 100 engines operating side by side over that three year period, we would expect to have 150 engine failures if we repair the engine or replace that engine and put it back online 
as soon as that failure occurs. So this is almost, uh, it's essentially a, a rate at which failure is occurring expressed in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of, uh, of a, a, a mean period between failures. <laughs> no worries, thank you, Fred. So uh, if we go, if we, if we have this information, we know the MTBF of our engine, we can use a probability distribution called the Poisson distribution. And a Poisson distribution, like any other probability distribution, distributes probability to certain possible outcomes. All this does is let us understand the likelihood of certain outcomes of our random process. And our random process in this case, it is failure. Failure is our random process. So you can see uh, from this uh, Poisson distribution, the equation is on the screen right now, we can get uh, a certain bar heights for our chart. And if you want to use the Poisson distribution uh, without having to go through those calculations by hand, there is the Excel equation that you guys can use. Now, uh, perhaps by a quick show of hands or any comments in the comments box, who has worked out how many spare parts you need uh, using the Poisson distribution? I'm trying to see the level of familiarity, familiarity with this. Just the one. Okay. So not a lot of people have used the Poisson distribution to, uh, to calculate how many spares I need. Well, let's just go through what we've got so far. We, we know the mean time between failure of our engine. We're able to use a Poisson distribution to create these uh, heights of these bars, which give us an understanding of the likelihood of any number of failures occurring in the next, in the next three year period. Okay, so in this case, the Poisson distribution, when I entered that equation into Excel, when I gave it a mean of 1.5 failures in our period of interest, it was able to tell me that we expect there to be a 22.31% chance that we'll have no failures in the next three years, given that mean a number of failures we do expect. So we expect to see one and a half on average for each engine. And if we use our Poisson distribution, because failure is a random process, there's a finite chance we'll have no engine failures at all. And so the Poisson distribution will quantify that for us and say there's a 22.31% chance of us having no engine failures, which is great. That's obviously the thing we want to have happen the most. <clears throat> okay, I can see a comment from uh, Andre Michelle, I hope that the name correct. You don't use it put a space in the MTBF. Oh, correct me if I'm wrong. Well, let's uh, come back to that comment. It's a very good uh, comment or, or uh, I suppose scope for a question. Let's go through the Poisson distribution in a bit greater detail and come back to what you're talking about. Okay, so if we do use a Poisson distribution, which is based on the MTBF, uh, we are able to work out that there is a 22.31% chance of having zero engine failures, there's a 33.47% chance, so roughly one in three chance of us having one failure over the next three years. There's a 25.1% chance of us having two failures, roughly one in four, um, so on and so forth. There's a 12.55% chance of us having three engine failures and 4.71% chance of us having four engine failures. And obviously 
the more failures we, we're examining, the less likely it is to, for us to have five failures, it's only 1.41% chance because we, uh, because of our mean spectate or mean or expectation of the number of failures we're going to observe. Now, what we have on the right-hand side is the sum of all those probabilities for zero, one, two, three, four, and five failures. And you can tell, obviously, if you do the math, that if you add those probabilities together, we have a 99.55%. Uh, the, the output of that addition is 99.55%, I should say. So can someone brave enough to uh, use a comment box, perhaps type out what the uh, figure of 99.55% means, given the scenario I've just explained? What does 99.55% refer to? Anyone brave? Does that probability of less than five failures? Very close, Sean, the probability of five or fewer failures. But uh, you can see what you're on, certainly on the right track. So uh, well done, Sean, for understanding what the philosophy or, or structure of this bar chart means for us, which means that if we want to be 99.55% certain that we will have enough engines for our three-year period, we best have at, uh, at five engines in the warehouse ready to swap in. So this is what the Poisson distribution gives us. It gives us the ability to work out how many spares we need to be X percent certain we'll get through the next three, four years, whatever, whatever the time period it is that matters to you. Yeah. Why is this done? Well, I'm going to go back to my favorite random hand of failure. So this is an animation I need to have in as many webinars as possible because it's very important to remember that failure is a random process. There's tons of different factors that influence the time to failure of our product system or service. And so for seemingly identical situations, for seemingly identical engines, we can have different times to failure because failure is a random process. Just because it's random though, doesn't mean it's not predictable. So you can see here that the times to failure represented by each one of these dots that our random hand of failure created, summarizing the physical world around us, tends to cluster around a central value. And if we were to conduct this experimental test at infinitum, we get enough data points to produce this wonderful smooth curve, uh, which represents the density of failure times for given uh, potential values. Uh, we can convert that to a probability density. And that means you can see that the tide of the curve represents the, the area or time to play, which is most likely for our engines. Now, this, is, this probability density curve, the probability density function which describes this curve, is a very prevalent concept in reliability engineering. And the reason is because this curve gives us our reliability curve. Our reliability curve often looks something like this. Typically starts at 100% or one, and then as the probability of our thing failing increases, obviously our reliability curve starts to go down. In fact, once we have essentially, uh, once the probability of our thing failing is almost certain, our reliability curve approaches zero. So 
as our thing ages, as it gets older, as it, as it gets used more often, as the engine in our mining truck gets, uh, let's just say, flogged to death because it is used in a very arduous environment, eventually it's going to fail. So a reliability curve will get to zero. So what does that mean for this particular problem here? Well, before we look at what this curve actually means, we need to introduce the concept of the failure or the hazard rate, which is the rate at which a, uh, a thing that is still, still working fails. So what the failure rate takes into consideration is, hey, don't care how old you are, but if you're working today, what's the probability of you still working tomorrow? In human speak, as we get older, our ability to survive the next day decreases because we are wearing out. So in this case, wherever you see a bell curve or a hill or some sort of mound density curve where our times to failure tend to cluster around a central value, you, by definition, our thing is wearing out. And wear out is, occurs because our, our product is accumulating damage. And it can be accumulating damage to any one of these failure mechanisms which uh, essentially means that tomorrow, our thing is going to be weaker than today. So this is what it looks like when things wear out. We have a bell curve describing the time to failure density, and we have a hazard rate or failure rate, which increases over time. It just simply means that as our thing gets older, it is less likely to make it to tomorrow when compared to a brand new one. But this is not the only way things fail. If these data points were clustered around the start or the front of our axes, then the probability or time to failure density curve would look something like this. Not very intuitive, this sort of weird ramp pushed right up against the y-axis. And this is what wear-in looks like. That is what it looks like when our product fails early, but as it gets through that initial period of infant mortality, gets more and more reliable, which is not really true per se, you can't make things automatically more reliable. What is typically happening is that we have uh, products which have software bugs, interface issues, manufacturing defects, but only a smaller fraction of our total population has these problems. So as one of these uh, engines gets removed or repaired, once one of these manufacturing defects becomes to light and cause a failure, essentially that defect is removed from the entire population. So the, the engines that are left, are more likely going to be those ones that don't have the defects, which means that from a population perspective, those engines that get through that initial infant mortality period are gonna be the ones which are less likely to have defects and appear to be more reliable than those ones that failed early. So that is what wearing looks like. And the really a reason we're very focused on these things is because if you're trying to improve reliability, you, fir you first need to understand if it's wear out, which means that that could be a fatigue problem, a, a, a creep problem, a dendritic growth problem, whatever, one of those failure mechanisms which we typically know very well that results in our thing failing. If we have wearing, then we need to look in, in our manufacturing processes, our transit, our assembly, our installation. Those problems are what cause our infant mortality or wearing. And the most famous uh, hazard rate or failure rate curve of all time is the bathtub curve, which is essentially a way of representing these different types of hazard or failure rates. So in this case, our system has wearing, it also has wear out. So it has both a small fraction of its population with manufacturing defects, 
but eventually all the things that come to light will, uh, sorry, all the things that make our engine work will start wearing out. So the back of this bathtub curve is where our hazard rate or failure rate starts to increase. And uh, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes we have a flat bottom of our bar. A lot of the time it's simply just wear in and then go straight to wear out. But if we see a constant hazard rate or a flat hazard rate, it means that essentially for that, that little period at least, an older version of our thing is no more or less reliable than a younger version. It's memoryless. It just means that essentially the things that are causing your product to fail are catastrophic external stresses. Think about vehicle accidents or lightning strikes or tsunamis. Things that when they come along will kill your system no matter how old or young it is. And so if you know the characteristics of your failure or hazard rate, it gives you your first clue on what it is you should be doing as a reliability engineer to make things better. So before I move on, are there any questions about the hazard or failure rate? Noting that I have covered these a few times in previous webinars, but if there's any other questions or any comments, please feel free to share them now. Around music. Any comments on the hazard rate or failure rate? Okay, feel free to, if a question comes to mind at the failure rate or hazard rate uh, later on this webinar, feel free to put it in the comments box as well, or the chat window, I should say. All right, so let's go back to our engine. Why did I take you through this statistical mumbo jumbo? Oh, here's a question. Can we design out random failures if at all possible? And I need more information than that, Andre Michelle, because uh, every failure is random. Things that wear out with an increasing failure rate, that is, a, that is based on a random process as well. Remember, just because it's random doesn't mean it's not predictable. So that's random. Things wearing in, of course, uh, we can't predict exactly when that manufacturing defect is going to cause that thing to fail. We can characterize the slope of that failure rate or hazard rate curve. So that's still random. I believe you're talking about the bottom of the bathtub curve where the constant or the hazard rate or failure rate is constant. Is that correct? Just confirm that's what you're talking about. Might be typing a lengthy response, usually putting a pump indoors rather than outdoors. I think what you're getting at is uh, is the idea that the bottom of that bathtub curve with the hazard rate or failure rate is constant. Um, a lot of people refer to that region as random failures. Just want to just be clear that all failures are random; they just have different characteristics. So putting a pump indoors rather than outdoors essentially means that pump is not going to be exposed to what I've assumed to be harsher environmental conditions. If it's inside, it might be air conditioned, might have humidity control. It's not uh, as likely to be rained on. It's not as likely to be, uh, to be damaged by a vehicle reversing over it, for example. So I'd expect both the, uh, if there is a, was a bathtub curve, I'd expect the bottom of that bathtub curve to go down for our pump that's inside mainly because it's not going to get hit with those catastrophic environmental stresses, or at least if they are going to, if it is going to get hit, it's going to be less severe. So the probability of failure decreases. 
other thing that I would expect that pump uh, is to uh, is that the wear out uh, or the increasing part increasing failure rate part of our bathtub curve might be pushed further to the left because uh, wear out can be accelerated by environment as well. So if it's outside in the sun, you would expect that to accelerate certain degradation failure mechanisms. If it's inside in an air conditioned environment, then that rate of degradation might slow. So uh, you can essentially design out pretty much every single one of those types of failure. You just need to know which one it is that you're going to focus your design efforts on. So hopefully that answers your question. Okay. okay, thank you for asking that question. Very good question. So let's go back to our, our engine, our engine for our big mining truck. And we're going to, I don't know, go through some statistic stuff. And if you do want to learn a bit more about this, uh, there's other webinars you can look at to, to get on top of it. And I'm not going to go in great detail today, so um, uh, please don't walk away. Uh, don't take that phone call. But I will just go through a very basic overview of how reliability engineers can examine the characteristics of a system product or service. So here is a Weibull plot, which is a way of representing data on a set of axes, which allows us to infer information. On the vertical axis, we have um, the probability of our thing failing. You can see this weird scale there. And we have that scale uh, to help us identify certain patterns. And on the horizontal axis is, in this case, time to failure. So in the case of our engine, we have some really useful data which describes how our engine's failing. If we draw a straight line through our data points, the Weibull plot is really, really good at helping us work out how uh, how steep our slope is. And if that's, if our, if the, the slope of this line, in this case, uh, corresponds with this number six on the top of the Weibull plot, does anyone know what that means? What does a Weibull, what we call shape parameter or six mean? Weibull shape parameter of six, which is in this case much greater than one. What does, does what does that mean? Does anyone know? Wear out. Thank you, David. T intense aging at some point. Yeah, it's a good, you use a good term there, uh, Andre, when you, talk, when you talk about intense. A lot of people, when they see really high shape parameters, they go, wow, this thing wears out really quick. It works really well for a long time, but then it wears out really quick. Another way of looking at it is that the failure mechanisms are very closely related to our unit of measurement. So another webinar might be how Ford, I might examine how Ford has got a much better idea of how long their brake pads take to wear. So instead of being this certain about when the brake pads are going to fail, they're now this certain. This certain implies that we have this really high slope. So in a way, having a really high slope is not necessarily intense wearing out, it's actually being really certain about when our thing is going to fail because we understand the failure mechanisms very, very well. But in, for the purpose of this webinar, what I'm trying to show is that some basic reliability engineering stuff can tell us that our engine is wearing out. Why is that an issue for what we just looked at? Well, here is that Poisson distribution of probability for certain uh, numbers of failures we expect to see in a certain period. The problem with the Poisson distribution is that it only models things with constant hazard rates. In fact, it is the only distribution which can do this sort of stuff um, because every other distribution 
which uh, tackle, which takes into consideration things like wear and wear out, uh, essentially either non-existent or too complicated for our poor old computers to evaluate. So towards a precise distribution, the only thing that can tell us the number of events that are going to occur, or I should say the likelihood of a number, number of events occurring in a certain interval or time window, we see it used all the time. Problem with that is it only models things that have constant hazard rates. Now, I see a question coming in here, constant hazard rates equals MTDF. Um, not quite everything. I mean, our engine, it's wearing out. So it has a very, it, it, it's uh, those times of failure are clustered around a certain central point. Now, it has a mean time between failure or mean time to failure. In fact, every device has a mean time between or mean time to failure. What we're talking about with the MTBF is that when you use the MTBF and nothing else, no other characteristic like our shape parameter for a Weibull distribution, essentially we default to thinking everything has a constant hazard rate. And that's the main issue with just using the MTBF and nothing else. And the Poisson distribution essentially uses the mean and nothing else. And, uh, in terms of the uh, MTBF being a lambda parameter, uh, not quite uh, on a Michelle. So in this case, the expected number of failures in three years is the, the, time, uh, the, the period we're interested in three years divided by the mean time between failure, which is two years. So we have a two year MTBF for our engine, which means if we had enough of them, we'd expect to see one and a half failures for each engine in our three year period. Does that make sense? even though we don't have a constant hazard rate for our engine. Typing, 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 maybe. All right, we might come back to that one to finish off that conversation, but the Poisson distribution is essentially based on the variation of the MTBF. Now, hopefully it makes sense that our engine wears out. Engines are very big, clunky things, so, we expect a lot of failure mechanisms in our engine to be based on the accumulation of damage. So it makes sense that our engine wears out. And because our engine wears out, the Poisson distribution is not a good model. So why am I going through all this gun? Well, because if we incorporate our understanding of the, the uh, wear out characteristics of our engine, and we then use that knowledge to recreate our probability distribution, this is what happens. You can see that with uh, what, what was what I jokingly referred to as super sophisticated Monte Carlo simulation. It's not, it's actually quite easy. We can tell that we are much more, based on our engine's actual characteristics, not one where we assume an old one is as good as a new one. Uh, we are much more likely to see two failures. There's a little chance of us seeing one failure and the chances of us seeing three, four, five or more failures is really, really low. So Monte Carlo simulation is extraordinarily useful because it allows us to incorporate the shape parameter of our Weibull distribution, which means that these uh, numbers of failures are based on what our engine actually is, not what our textbook prefers it to be. And includes starting, in this case, the simulation I did, we also randomized how old our engines were at the start of our three-year period. So we didn't, we didn't assume every engine at the start of our three-year period was brand new. I mean, you could if you wanted to, but in this case, this simulation is based on assuming 
uh, that the engines are, uh, are at, at random points in their service life. And this is this use a technique which uh, could uh, like a cover and perhaps subsequent webinars or courses. It's really quite simple once you understand how to put it together. And when we do this, look at what we can glean. We can work out based on our engine's characteristics. There is a virtually there's virtually next no no chance of us seeing zero failures in the um, uh, in our three year period. There is an eight point three five percent chance there will be one failure. There is an almost 90% chance of there being two failures, and there's a 1.71% chance of there being three failures. Now, add all these numbers up, and it's not 100%, it's just very, very close, or so close that you know, we need more than two decimal points. But if we use this approach, this, this uh, analysis, it turns out we only need three engines to be almost 100% sure that we will get through the next three years without ever running out of spares. So if we use the textbook approach, which advocates Poisson distribution, Poisson distribution, that's the one you need to use, NTBF, nothing else. We could replace that approach with this approach, learn a bit about our engine, work out its uh, wear out value characteristics. And when we do that, we have just saved ourselves two engines sitting in the warehouse. And what will happen to two out of the five engines that are all but guaranteed to be unused at the end of our three-year period. Well, if any, any of you have been involved in mining or essentially managing big machines in general, uh, the first thing that's going to happen if you have if you purchase five engines, five spare engines instead of three spare engines, is, you, is that you'll just start paying extra 1.4 to 1.6 million dollars up front. And that's that's not a that's not a spare change in anyone's shape, in anyone's language. So you have to spend a lot more money using the spares that your Poisson distribution analysis says you need to have. And don't forget, engines don't just like sitting there and never being used, especially for three years. If they're going to be on the shelf, they actually need to be maintained. The seals don't dry up, the lubrication doesn't just spoil, and all those sorts of really annoying things that you have to do to engines that you, that you might not ever get any benefit from. Remember that we worked out we only need three engines to be almost certain that we'll get through the next three year window without running out of, running out of engines. But if you use a more sophisticated approach, we can reduce the number of spares we need from five to three. And even if you do start with five, it just means that in practice, you won't use nearly as many engines as you think. And those engines might not be any good at the end of a three year uh, period, just because they've been sitting on the shelf for that period of time, perhaps in inhospitable conditions as well. Remember, mining occurs where the minerals are, not where we would like to do, uh, like to undertake mining operations. So that's the, that's the typical way we go about uh, getting spares in the real world, or I should say when we use a, the Poisson distribution is forced down our throat, but it costs us a ton of money. There's an even dumber way of doing this as well, and that's uh, based on the old textbook way. So the one we just went through is the textbook way. There's a dumber way, which is the old textbook way. And there's a reason why the old textbook way exists. So uh, if we go back to our um, Poisson distribution, where we assume everything has a constant hazard rate, you can see that there is a sort of bell curve in our uh, probability distribution. And in fact, we can show statistically that as a number of values increase, 
uh, the, the Poisson distribution will, more, will uh, be more closely just, uh, aligned with the bell curve shape. And so a lot of textbooks exploit this very general relationship to say, hey, let's not even deal with the Poisson distribution. Let's create a bell curve, a normal distribution. Now we know the mean number of phase we expect to see in that three year period is 1.5. So our bell curve has a mean of 1.5. We know the Poisson distribution has a standard deviation uh, of the square root of the mean, which means that this bell curve here has a standard deviation, standard deviation of the square root of 1.5. So we've got rid of all those bars and replaced with this curve here. And then we use this curve to work at how many spare parts we need. But you should notice straight away that we have a problem over here because the bell curve extends below zero, which means that if we assume this bell curve to be true, there's a finite chance of us requiring negative one engines during our three year period. Somehow our truck is going to lay an egg and out of that egg will hatch a brand new engine. So there is one issue with this, um, what we call normal approximation. Let's keep going anyway. We can use this bell curve, for example, to, uh, to work out that we will need to have 4.35 uh, spare engines to be close to 99% sure that we won't run out. So you can see here that we use, you can use a bell curve. Uh, 4.35 is not between, it's between four and five. So typically we round it up. And so the outcome of the bell curve uh, analysis gives us a very similar answer to the Poisson distribution analysis where we worked out we needed to have five engines. And the equation for this approach looks something like this. Well, lambda is the failure rate, T is the time period, Z is the standard normal variable, which gives us our bell curve and the standard normal variable at a particular confidence level. So if you want to be 99% certain you won't run out, we get the standard normal variable at 99%. And uh, that's our failure rate. There's an the interval again, sorry. There, I, went, I went too fast. Now, the reason why I'm taking you through this is because you see this equation a lot. And the reason why we see this equation is because back in the day when we didn't have uh, Excel spreadsheets or, or computers, statisticians had to use essentially uh, tables of random variables to solve statistical problems. So what they could do was uh, try and uh, approximate known uh, physical phenomena with the bell curve and then use the bell curve tables and numbers to help solve or answer particular questions. But don't forget, we have moved along in terms of technology over the last 30, 40 or 50 years. And just because this was an appropriate methodology back in the day when there were no such things as calculators means uh, it, it shouldn't just automatically mean it is still a thing we should use today. We don't just stay in the past. We have the technology at our fingertips to make better design decisions. And if you want to do that, then of course, you're going to be the mining company which has two engines at the end of your three year period, which cost you 1.4 to $1.6 million, which are now no good because all the seals have, have perished and, and the lubrication is spoiled. You can't use them anymore. So you're just throwing money away if you're going to use old approaches. But there's more dumb approaches as well. So there's a ne next level dumb way of doing uh, dealing with spares is the way that you, I see in a lot of bodies of knowledge, and it's uh, quite embarrassing and shocking uh, to, uh, as a reliability engineer. So let's just say, uh, let's look at a scenario where we're looking at one uh, item in particular. And in this case, we have one system which has a failure rate of 2.5 by 10 
It's the power of minus six bays per hour. The interval we're interested in is 4,000 hours. And we want to know how many spares of this single device we need to be certain that we'll have enough spares for it to, to survive our 4,000 hour period. Now you can see here that uh, from our Poisson distribution, the bar behind our bell curve, that it's almost certain that we'll have zero failures in our 4,000 hour period. Um, so that bell curve here is what some people, some uh, reliability practitioners suggest you need to do in scenarios like this. But the reality is, even though this bell curve is technically based on the Poisson distribution, it's a very poor approximation because we have such a small number of failures in case. In this case, most likely number of failures is zero. But nevertheless, a lot of bodies of knowledge suggest this is how you come up with sparing. We simply work out from our bell curve, which has the mean given to us by our failure rate and operating, uh, operating duration. We go through the whole math, we work at the area under the bell curve, and it tells us that we need to have 0.1745 spares, be 95% confident that we will have, we won't run out of spares during our 4,000 hour operating window. That's all well and good. But let's just say we have 150 of these things, not just one, one system, we have 150 of them. Well, the body of knowledge approach is that we take this figure over here, multiply it by 150 to give us a grand total of 26 spares for our fleet of 150. Now, why is this beyond dumb? Well, if we go back to our Poisson distribution, instead of looking at it from a single systems perspective, we can look at it from a fleet perspective. And it turns out that if we have 150 systems uh, with a failure rate of 2.5 by 10 to the power of minus six days per hour and the interval in question is 4,000 hours, turns out we expect 1.5 failures in our 4,000 hour period. And this is the Poisson distribution which describes that scenario. And we've just gone through this example, which told us we need four spares. So if we have a fleet perspective, we have, uh, we, we can, in, in virtually every statistical approach we use, when we look at the fleet as a whole, it turns out we need to have fewer spares uh, on average. So if we look at the fleet in this case, four spares. But we, if we look at each individual component and then multiply whatever we get from that analysis by 150, it tells us we need 27 spares. So a question for you guys, what, what might be behind the rationale for us not needing nearly as many spares um, per item when we look at, look, at it, look at it as a fleet and not just a bunch of individual components or systems? Why might this uh, really reduce the number of spares we need to have on hand. What could be going on here? We look at 150 things and not just 150 lots of single things. Why do, what does the math and statistics tell us we need a lot fewer spares? Any guesses? Any guesses? Has it stumped us all? Someone has asked us to ask me to repeat the question. So let's just say 
if we are we have a problem, we're trying to work out how many spares we need for a fleet of things. If we look at each one of those things individually and work out how many spares each one needs as if it's its own fleet and then multiply the answer from that analysis by 150, why does it always give us uh, or falsely tell us that we need to have a much, uh, much more spares than a fleet-wide perspective suggests? Good guess, Andre, not quite, because let's assume that every single engine in this case or every single device is exactly the same, so there's no inherent biases or, or perhaps uh, uh, tendencies to have certain types of equipment in small fleets versus certain other types of equipment, equipment in bigger fleets. You are multiplying the rounding errors, not quite sure, because there's no errors per se in terms of how many spares we need. If the assumptions are, uh, are valid, which, then, uh, then the answer is what it is. But think of this more operationally. If you look at a bunch of systems by themselves and say we have 150 systems, look at each spare, uh, so look at each system and work at how many spares we need for that single system. What we're essentially doing is saying, hey, that spare is for that system only. And when we multiply by 150, essentially the, the statistics which tells us we need 27 spares uh, means that it is based on this premise that each spare has got a particular system's name on it, which is not how it works in a fleet environment. If you have a single shop, a single store, one spare can replace an engine or, or fix a, a system, uh, it fix any, any one of our 150 systems. And that's an additional level of flexibility which gets taken into consideration when you look at things at the fleet level. So one of the easiest ways to reduce the number of spares you think you need is to move away from looking at things at a, at a system level and multiplying it based on how many things you have in your fleet and instead characterizing the entire fleet, characterizing the entire number of systems you have. Because when you do, that takes into consideration the flexibility for one spare fixing any value you see in your fleet. So it's a very, uh, very easy thing to do. The flip side is that if you, for some reason, break up your fleet into smaller groups, then you, the number of spares you need to have in total goes up. But if you understand the statistics, you can use the statistics to your, to your benefit. So one way, a dumb way of working at how many spares you need is to look at each system, work at how many spares you need for that system, and then multiply by 150 because the premise is that spare for that system can only be used for that system and the statistics bears that out. Look at it from a fleet perspective, that flexibility and repair gets taken into consideration and you need fewer spares. But there are other dumb ways as well. The other dumb way for doing this, uh, doing spare stuff is to use old guy guesses. What I mean by that, basic parts count approaches. So you will see again in standards that uh, we have this thing called Lambda, which represents the failure rate which assumes that your thing is in a series system. And then you look at all the components in your system. You say, that's an engine, that's a pump, uh, that's a keypad. And then you have tables, which give you the typical failure rates for those types of equipment. And then you work at how many of each you have in your system, multiply that by the failure rate, and you get, and you get your system level uh, uh, failure rate estimate. So this is the num number of each component in, uh, in your system. So for example, you might have uh, three pumps 
and the failure rate for those three pumps according to that standard on the shelf is represented by lambda one. In this case, N subscript one will be three. So three multiplied by the failure rate for pumps, you've got in that book off the shelf, plus 10 times the failure rate for pulleys, plus 11 times the failure rate for bearings. And so you add all these failure rates up to help you work out what you think the failure rate for your system might be. Now, one of the biggest criticisms of this is that, hey, essentially these failure rates are best guesses by those old guys who completed that standard handbook 10, 20, 30 years ago. And the reality is they're old guy guesses, no matter what you do. So some bright young things have said, aha, we can accommodate this by introducing what we call quality factors. So if you think your thing is better quality than the hypothetical system in that standard or represented by that standard, you can say, oh, well, my quality factor is going to be 0 0.5. It's twice as good. So the failure rate is going to be half what that, that standard says it needs to be. Where you get that quality factor from, who knows? Because those standards like Mill Handbook 217 don't give you any idea about the level of quality they assume when they're coming up with their failure rate estimates. But it's not only just the quality things. We have the fact that our pump could be inside versus outside. So what do we do? We introduce these environmental stress factors, which means that if you think that uh, the guys who put together the failure rates with Mill Handbook 217 were thinking about outside operating characteristics, uh, conditions, I should say, and you think that indoors is 10 times less severe, then your environmental stress factor might be 0.1 for that pump. Again, you're just making these numbers up. And so this gives you uh, this gives you a failure rate, which is not even close to an output of a genuine reliability analysis. But I see this approach used time and time and time again, especially in military uh, uh, projects where we're talking about millions, perhaps billions of dollars being spent on very complex machines. But the approach we use to get the, uh, get the estimates of how many spares we need starts with some really, really basic is too strong a word for what is going on here. It is a, it is a, a dumb way of working at how many spares you need. It's based on old guy guesses for somebody else's system, not your system. There are slightly more sophisticated approaches for asset management um, scenarios where we have an economic order quantity, which is based on this rule of thumb here, where you have your annual failure rate, set up costs associated with, with, uh, bring, with uh, replacing uh, or bring, uh, storing your, uh, your spare on the shelf and the unit cost. When I represent interest associated with having that thing in your warehouse as well. So this is a basic rule, which starts taking into consideration things like cost and installation um, and all those different things. However, it's still based on the assumption that your thing has a constant hazard rate. There's no way known that this thing can be really useful uh, unless you're talking about vast quantities of spare parts where uh, it is in some cases okay to assume a constant hazard rate because the central limit theorem essentially means that when we have lots of uh, random events adding up, they tend to uh, all look the same. It's a genuine phenomenon, but unfortunately we use that assumption too often. Instead of having only three engines on site, we, we instead, uh, we instead uh, purchase five and all the, all the problems that that brings to bear as well. So of, uh, of, of uh, the 
of you guys out there from the people listening to this webinar. Does anyone, uh, is anyone brave enough to uh, share with the group how you guys go about working and how many spares you need or uh, perhaps any problems you think you might be coming up against in the future to try and solve a logistics engineering problem? Any, any scenarios that are similar to the general problem I've been speaking about today, both in the past or in the future? Anyone happy to describe their sparing logistics engineering problems? And those problems tend to be quite large, so I can understand that there is a time lag while it takes while you take the time to type out the scenario. Also appreciate that uh, you might not be able to share due to commercial and confidence stuff. Nothing is coming through right now. So keep typing. So by the time we get to this end of the end of the presentation, we'll be able to share uh, or discuss the scenarios you're talking about. Here we go. Sean talked about using a Monte Carlo simulation to determine spares quantities, taking into account wear out and uncertainty in the MTBF. So uh, that sounds really good, Sean. It sounds like not, not a million miles removed from what we did today. But we'll say that um, the MTBF won't be a, a, a metric which is affected per se by where in or where out. So it's a metric or parameter that each rent probability distribution has. So you typically need to have at least the MTBF plus something else like the shape parameter of our Y-ball distribution to, uh, to uh, be used in conjunction with your mean to help characterize how your thing uh, uh, wears in or wears out. So Fred has said that he has he's seen tons of organizations use the vendor recommended spares or just buy one of everything that can serve as a spare. That's a very common approach. Um, it's not particularly scientific and it typically means you have too many of lots of things and not enough of a very few. And you only need one or two things to fail for your entire system to come down. So uh, we do see that a lot. Um, another one is uh, finding the life characteristics of components and then finding expected number of failures, but might have uh, using individual calculation rather than fleet. Got that. Thanks for your feedback. It's um, uh, one of the best ways to, uh, to get better is, is to understand what has not been done well in the past and then moving forward, you uh, address those, those, uh, those so-called failures. Remember, experience is what we call all the failures in our life. If we don't make, if we don't try stuff and and uh, and make make errors, and we are inexperienced, so experience is simply what we call all our failures. Failures, and to realise what your experience is, you need to be able to work out what you can do better next time. That's where experience becomes very very useful. The other thing I will suggest is that um, uh, is that. A lot of the software out there, which allegedly uses Monte Carlo simulation, really doesn't. Um, a, lot of, a lot of Monte Carlo simulation is essentially based on constant hazard rates and constant, constant failure rates. It's just a different way of solving what can be complex uh, statistical problems. 
Um, so a lot of the sparing software, a lot of uh, availability and monitoring software, it, it can uh, impress people or bamboozle people with the term Monte Carlo simulation in this glossy brochure. But when you pull back the layers, that simulation can be very, very basic indeed and still be based on the constant hazard rate, which means you don't get the level of sophistication you really want to have. I see that um, success is failure turned inside out. Happy with that. <laughs> um, so we're talking about uh, some people have used, Andre talked about how he, he's looked at this uh, single system and extrapolated to a system. We see that this formula here um, by Shrivetson is f of t plus t equals f of t over one minus f of t, which means uh, that is beyond the scope of this conversation today. It, again, it's based on a very simple assumption where you're talking about looking at the probability of failure sometime in the future is equal to the probability of failure now divided by reliability, which is uh, it's, which is a conditional uh, conditional uh, failure probability. Essentially, it means that if we are working as of today, what is the failure probability going to be three uh, three days from now? For, that's particularly useful if your system has infant mortality. So if you've got through the infant mortality period, you can rejig the reliability curve for that thing. The trick is that we need to use that now conditional probability to, um, uh, to then uh, work out how, uh, how many spares we need. Uh, got a question. Did I explain fleet-based spares analysis? I, I did, I obviously didn't make it, make it as clear as I could have, where if we use the Poisson distribution, we use the total number of vehicles, engines, or systems, uh, and the failure rate or MTBF of each one of those systems to work out how many failures we expect the entire fleet in the interval in question. So if we have 10 trucks, how many failures do we expect in 10 trucks in a three-year period? Remember, we expect each truck to have 1.5 failures in a three-year period. So for 10 trucks, we would expect to have 15 failures. And we use that number to feed that back into our Poisson distribution or our statistical modeling approach to then work out the probability of, uh, of certain numbers of fleet failures occurring or not. Um, Volker, fleet size, production impact, OEM, source location, plan, service life. Oh, there's a lot of stuff in there. Equipment criticality, um, condition monitoring, effectiveness, effectiveness, so on and so forth. It's a good point. I see there uh, the word criticality, and we could use that for any number of factors. Sometimes it's uh, you, you're happier to run a higher risk of certain components, spares running out during a, a certain window. Uh, you'd be less happy. Uh, for other spares where if you run out of those spares, you have safety issues or the entire production stops. If you have components where it sort of makes life annoying if you run out, run out of them during that, in that three year period, you can tolerate a higher risk of not having enough of those, especially if that allows you to have more of the high risk uh, 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 spares that you need on hand as well. So there's a ton of things that, uh, factors I would say in Volker's response, they're factors for an approach, um, which go, which sort of get uh, the preamble or precursor to the statistical stuff we touched on today. Uh, and also Andre referred to the general renewal process, calculate the life characteristics of a population. That's looking at a fleet, absolutely it is. That's where you, the 
A general renewal process refers to a scenario where failure is not the end of the day of your system. It gets renewed. So if we have failure rates or hazard rates changing throughout the life of our system, especially if the entire fleet ages as it gets older, we can use things like general renewal processes to model how many, um, how many events we expect to see, which, which is a, a fancy way of describing what I did to get my, um, my Monte Carlo simulation for our true number of engine failures. It was a general renewal process uh, approach. And when we do that, we only need to have three engines versus five. So general renewal process is very, very useful. The only issue is, is the general renewal processes that you, that see, in a lot of, you see in a lot of textbooks to solve those or to answer questions, they rely on assumptions. And sometimes you see general general renewal processes that are taking to, that essentially do default to a constant hazard rate. General renewal processes also have factors like good as old or as good as good as new. So uh, when you repair a, a truck, are you taking it back to how reliable it was at the time of failure? Or are you taking it back to what you think is the brand new version of that truck? And one of the biggest problems I see with general renewal processes where they go as good as new, is they often forget about input mortality, which is at its peak in the first month or two of these big trucks doing their thing. So sometimes good as old is better than, better than good, good as new, but that's a whole new, whole other discussion on general renewal process. Yes, general renewal process is for repairable systems. Uh, technically, it can be for replaceable systems because replaceable systems are, um, uh, you can replace, replacing is one form of maintenance, but the modeling approach you would need is essentially that your system that you've just replaced gets considered to be as good as new. Um, a lot of, lot of the time, that's not particularly useful. It's not, uh, sorry, that, that level of simplicity doesn't require an entire general renewal process uh, framework to be constructed. Um, but yes, technically you can use replacement in a general renewal process. It's just not what a general renewal process is intended to do. Hopefully that answers your question. Those are really good questions, by the way, and really good scenarios that you guys have shared with us, much appreciated. So I'm just gonna finish this webinar. Uh, with a comment on what logistics engineering is. It's not maintainability. Maintainability is a design characteristic of our thing that uh, helps us work out or helps us understand how much effort needs to be invested into keeping our thing in tip-top condition. Logistics engineering is all about taking the characteristics, the maintenance and reliability characteristics of our thing and working out, for example, how many spares we need. It is not the same thing. Maintainability is all about how easy it is to maintain. Logistics engineering is all about observing the maintenance characteristics and essentially dealing with it. So we get we often get confused um, or we'll see these words used interchangeably, and it's not the case. And that does a disservice to us as reliability engineers because all of a sudden maintainability stops being a design consideration and it starts being considered to be the equation that tells us how many spare engines we need. That's not what maintainability is all about. Logistics engineering is not reliability engineering. It's not maintainability engineering. Logistics engineering is about 
engineering, your supply chain, and your warehousing, and, your, and all your maintenance stuff, all the framework that needs to go around your system uh, to uh, keep it uh, keep it running. And the reason why logistics engineering is not to be confused with maintainability or reliability engineering is because the logistics engineering process doesn't address or doesn't deal with improving reliability or improving maintainability. If you are, if, if the ultimate aim of your engineering endeavors is to improve reliability, then you're a reliability engineer. Same with maintainability. And for that reason, I want to really make sure that uh, the things we've been looking at today are all in the realms of logistics engineering. But that said, we can use reliability engineering expertise, wobble plots, shape numbers of six, to work out that we don't need to have five spare engines, we only need three. And that can save us between one and $2 million. It can also mean that those engines won't sit on the shelf for three years and perish. And it just means that we can make our bosses happier when we save their money today you are using essentially a paper-based analysis activity. And when you do that, that's when you as a reliability engineer really get loved in your organization. You can find things to implement today that save money without you having to invest any money, you start becoming a hero and you start becoming listened to. So on that note, I know we've just hit the one hour mark. Are there any final questions before we all spear off? Any final questions? I've got a hand raised. Did I see that? Who's got their hand? Yeah. Rakesh, do you want to ask a question? Okay, I can see that Shrivitson's up. Shrivitson has asked the question, how much percent of the life of the component can be called as infant mortality period? That's not quite the perspective we should be asking the question from because the infant mortality period is defined by the period where uh, the failures that do occur are dominated by infant mortality failures, where the wearing, where the hazard rate is decreasing. Now, each different component or each different system or each different product will be subjected to different manufacturing approaches, different installation techniques, uh, different uh, transportation considerations. So each different product will have a different, re or its region of infant mortality can be completely different, even if the product is essentially functionally identical to another one. So you look at a lot of plant material, for, for example, companies who are really good at designing, manufacturing, install, installing pumps, they, you would expect them to have a much smaller region of infant mortality compared to those ones who, uh, who had to compete for that job based on price and price only. If you, you always take the lowest bidder, you always, you're always opening yourselves to, uh, to organizations which feel like they have to cut corners to get your business, which and the first thing to go is quality control, uh, packing it properly, uh, investing in maintenance teams to install it correctly on site. So it, it is no such, there's no such uh, given percentage that you can use to, uh, to uh, delineate one failure as being uh, infant mortality or wear out based on a reliability analysis of the data of your system. 
Um, I know that didn't answer your question, but hopefully it gives you some insight into what you need to look for to characterize the infant mortality of your product system or service. In fact, it sounds like a good topic for another webinar. Rakesh, did you want to ask your question? I can see you've unmuted. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Hello. Hello. Uh, yeah. Thank you, sir. Uh, sir, please define the MTBF. Is it the MTBF for the exponential failure only or for the uh, other uh, distribution also it uh, matters for that? Yeah, so um, it, again, I'll give the good topic for another webinar. If I was to go back to, um, back to a slide where you had the bell curve, why, why can't I move? You had a bell curve to describe um, uh, the times to failure for an example system. So if we look at this slide here, should be coming up right now. Uh, the the orange curve there is a bell curve, or bell shaped curve, I should say, which mm -hmm. which represents or, or or encodes the fact that times to failure tend to cluster around a central value. You can see those data points all around a, a central value. Now this is obviously not the exponential distribution, but this bell curve here, like every other probability density curve has an MTBF. Essentially, in, in practice, the MTBF is the point where you can balance this bell curve shape if it was solid. So every probability distribution has a mean, has a mean time between failure, including the exponential, the wobble, the normal, the log normal, they all have it. The reason why the MTBF is so commonly associated with the exponential distribution is that, that the exponential distribution is the only distribution which needs the MTBF for it to be entirely defined. The reason being, the exponential distribution models things that have a constant hazard rate, which don't wear out. One 100-year-old version of your product is just as reliable as a, you know, as a product which is being installed that day. So the MTBF is often really associated with the exponential distribution because of that fact. You only need the MTBF to describe the exponential distribution. So, but, but this distribution here, you can define this distribution, distribution, this curve here with a MTBF plus another parameter which describes the shape of this curve. So we often see probability distributions with two parameters, one called the scale, which can be the mean, and one called the shape, which in the normal distribution case is the standard deviation, which tell, helps you create the shape of your curve. The Weibull distribution, that shape parameter is the beta parameter, which uh, also usefully characterizes the wear in or wear out of our thing. So every probability distribution can have, uh, sorry, every, prob every probability distribution will have a mean. It's just the exponential is the only one which needs a mean and nothing else for it to be completely defined. But it doesn't model real world scenarios. Does that answer your question? Uh, sir, so one more question. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, uh, regarding that uh, maximum, we take the exponential distribution for the electronics unit, right? Maximum. Sorry, say that again, please. Uh, uh, that uh, exponential distribution, yep. normally we will derive for that ex uh, electronic parts only, right? Maximum, not for the mechanical parts. 
Um, is your question that we will, if we do use the exponential distribution, it's okay to use it for electronic components? Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, Not the answer, only, yeah. only for electronics or for the mechanical also we follow because somewhere we follow that uh, because exponential distribution, it is easy to explain e to the power of minus lambda t. It's a e easy test, right? So that's why we follow that uh, some mechanical parts also. We go for the exponential distribution. But uh, why only exponential? Different distribution also we can follow for the mechanical. Right, and there's a whole um, there's a whole a whole raft of answers to that question. It's, it's a whole uh, topic for discussion in its own right. The reason primarily is because the exponential mm -hmm. distribution is simple. You see it in textbooks. Again, textbooks are written be started to be written before we had computers. Uh, the exponential distribution allows us to answer really basic questions. The exponential distribution allows us to, to use a Poisson distribution. The reason we use it all the time is that it is uh, very, very simple. But let's go back to, is it okay to use it for electronic components? It is 100% okay to use it if your electronic compo components fail due to external stresses only. Those stresses that when they do come along, take out your component. That's where you see the constant hazard rate because those external stresses will take out an old component and that with just as much power or anger as they will a younger component. So if you see a constant hazard rate, it typically means that your things are most likely going to fail due to massive catastrophic external stresses. For electronic components, the, the typical external stresses you're going to see which, which result in a constant hazard rate are things like voltage spikes from dirty power. But we, if you look at uh, with, with electronic components, they are often sold to us from manufacturers who advertise reliability in terms of fits, for example, phase and time. We, one fit represents a failure rate of one, uh, one failure every 10 to the power of nine hours. Problem with that is that electronic components, they do wear out. They will have uh, dendritic growth they will have diffusion at the semiconductor level. And if you look at advertised fits, which can be as low as 10, one, sometimes less than one, that implies that your thing firstly has a constant hazard rate and that it has got a mean time between failure that exceeds 10,000 or 100,000 years. Now, you and I both know a capacitor, if it's used, being used 24 seven, will not last more than 10,000 years, but, these fit rates, which we get from our manufacturers, uh, if you do the math and statistics, suggest that on average, most of them will be lasting more than 10,000 years. The reason why uh, manufacturers use fits, or again, there's a large number of reasons, is because they test their components for a relatively short period of time, not in accelerated conditions, so there's no wear out failure mechanisms coming to play. And the idea is that they're only testing for those really early failures for those perfect operating scenarios, for those brand new semiconductors, capacitors, and resistors. And they test it in accordance with standards, which uh, realistically don't align with how our components are going to be actually used. But every manufacturer needs to communicate reliability using fits because that's what the industry expects these days. And for that reason, you've got this snowballing, um, snowball performance where essentially we just use the exponential distribution for electronic components. But we all know that electronic components do wear out. That's, that's their dominant family, family of failure mechanisms. 
if they have good operating conditions where there's no voltage spikes or things like that. Does that answer your question, Rakesh? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. No worries. Any more questions? All right, so we went well and truly over. May, our, I, may I ask you one Sorry. more question, sir? Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, sir, uh, will you please uh, let me explain that regarding the maintainability uh, before any product will be the in the design phase, right? Uh -huh. At that time, how the maintainability is important? Okay, so when it comes to maintainability, things like if you, let's just think about uh, built-in testing, for example. If you've mm -hmm. got a, a complex bit of kit, and uh, you need to, um, uh, let's just say, have some high, very critical components, critical in terms of being able to manufacture and get in time. Maybe you don't, if you, you don't want, if you need to inspect it, but it's important that device or components be in the heart of your engine bay, you could have a built-in test which replaces the manual inspection function that would otherwise exactly. require the entire engine to be taken out to inspect that part and have the engine put back in. Now that's a level of maintainability which can only happen during the design phase. So things like mm -hmm. sensors for your lubricants, things like uh, condition-based uh, monitoring, for example, you need to work out where your sensors are going to be embedded during the design process. Of course, you can you can uh, retrofit afterwards, but that's a lot more expensive and sometimes limited by the way your thing is laid out in the first place. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, and it's a MTT uh, MTBF is uh, sorry maintainability is directly proportional to MTTR, right? If the MTTR will increase, then the maintainability will in, will be increased, right? Yeah, uh, you can't look at that. You can't look at maintainability in isolation from reliability. So, for example, MTTR you're, you're referring to the mean time to repair. How yeah, do yeah. you compare one system which fails a lot but is easy to repair versus another system which doesn't fail as often but takes a lot more time to repair? It depends on what your organization values. Um, what if you have one system which requires uh, a smaller amount of maintenance or servicing, I should say, and that servicing needs to take your product offline versus this one over here, which needs more servicing, but you can do it at night when you're not during your production runs, conducting production runs. So even though this one might require more servicing on average, it might be able to do it at an interval which works with your operating schedule versus this one over here, which requires less scheduling, but it doesn't line up with your natural rest periods or natural downtime. So maintainability is a raft of characteristics which include things like how many tools you need, the qualifications of the people conducting the repairs, it's uh, how, if you're looking at uh, International Space Station, uh, only needing one tool, so you don't have to take 10 tools, which are 10 times as heavy into orbit. That's a maintainability characteristic which matters for the International Space Station. So uh, mean time to repair or mean corrective maintenance time is one maintainability characteristic, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your thing is more or less maintainable. You need to work out what your organization values. So I gave you a few scenarios where the metric might be worse, 
from a textbook perspective, it might be better for your organization. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. No worries. Okay, so you've gone. Sorry. Uh, okay. Can I ask one more question, sir? Why not? If you don't mind. <laughs> Let's go for it. Uh, uh, actually, sir, this one normally at the initial stage, for example, as a, as a since we go for the ARP 4761, right? One standard is there, right? So for that one, as per that procedure, initial uh, stage, we will do that reliability allocation, right? Then yep. to, and that reliability will allocate in all the systems. Okay. So like that way, MTTR can be allocated, right? Uh, in the all at the initial stage only, in the design stage only. Can we allocate the MTTR also? So reliability is not MTTR. So for example, reliability allocation might be specific reliability goals for the first six months of your system or the warranty period of your system or the uh, seven year service life. Now the MTBF or MTTF can't, if you, if you specify MTBF or MTTF, you could have a huge range of possible warranty period reliabilities, for example, but still have the same MTTF. Two products which have the same MTTF, MTTF might have a warranty reliability of 0.99, which is great. And, and well, the other one over here has a warranty reliability of 0.1, which is very, very bad. But statistically, it's still possible for them to have exactly the same MTBF or MTTF. So your question was, can you allocate MTBF and MTTF? The no, 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 Sorry? no, no. Uh, my question was for the MTTR, sir. Can we yeah. allocate the MTTR mean time to report uh, repair in the initial stage only? Oh, in the stage. MTTR. Yeah. Okay, so when it comes to allocating maintainability, um, mm -hmm. my recommendation is look at it from more encapsulating terms, perhaps availability. So for example, if you have that system over here, which fails more often, but is easy, easier to repair versus this system over here, which fails less often, but is much harder to repair. Maybe this thing has a very big MTTR, but it's it's uh, 10 times more reliable than this one over here. If you're, yeah, okay. so it's allocating the MTTR essentially implies that no matter how often you need to repair it, it's the only thing that matters to your organization is how long it takes to repair. When that's just simply not the case. A lot of the time, what organizations value a little bit more is on average, how much time is it spent in a down state. And that's where availability can be allocated to much more effect. So it gives the design team flexibility to work out if they should invest in a more reliable one, which is harder to repair, or a less reliable one, which is easy to repair. If you get your specifications right, that becomes very easy for the design team to work out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. Right, any more questions? We'll see. No, no, thank you. Okay. Thank, you sir. thank you very much. Not a problem. If you want to speak offline, if you want to contact me after this webinar to keep having these conversations, because <laughs> sure. these are really good questions, absolutely feel free. But um, beyond that, hey team, thank you for taking the time to listen to me for at least one hour. And some of you stayed for the 25 minutes while we had a really good discussion. Um, if there's anything you'd like to share, any scenarios, um, uh, Sean, sorry, I missed that comment. Uh, thank you, Shrivetson. Uh, you work for the International Space Station program too. So I'm guessing, Sean, you can appreciate that uh, a maintainability characteristic that matters to you is how many tools you need to be launched on that space shuttle or whatever other uh, launch platform to, to get into space. You, that is a very crucial 
uh, maintainability characteristic for uh, the space industry. But beyond that, hey team, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to me talk today about how you can make do some really easy things to save a ton of money, become that liability hero, and otherwise uh, add value to the organization. If any further questions, any feedback or any other scenarios like me to incorporate into these webinars, please let me know. You've got my contact details for Ascender Liability. But hey, thank you for your time. I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you next time. Thank you.